This evening's message will be partly exegetical and partly topical or thematic. Exegetically, it will be taken from Colossians chapter 3 in the first four verses. Thematically, you can use this as a title, The Power of a Risen Mind. And because that topic is somewhat controversial in certain formulations of it, that's why we will expand beyond just the verses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and incorporate a wider scope of God's Word so that we, in some measure at least, have a balanced view of what the Bible has to say about this matter. Whenever Abraham, after journeying three days, began to ascend a mountain that he had never been to before by the name of Moriah. Alongside of him, his only son, the son of the promise named Isaac. Whenever he was ascending that hill with Isaac at his side, and Isaac said, Father, behold the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said to his son, My son, God, shall provide a sacrifice. Whenever that occurred, brothers and sisters, Abraham was working from the power of a risen mind. It is the same one of whom we are told that he did not consider his own body now dead, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb, But he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to do. Now, if you think about it, when he was not considering his body and the condition of his elderly body and the deadness of Sarah's womb, do you think that his mind was therefore vacuous, that there was nothing in his head? No, brothers and sisters, he was seeing the stars as each being named after his lineage, his generations, the stars of heaven, every single one of them having a name associated with Abraham, beginning with Isaac, the son of joy. Now that is not the same sort of thing that we just described that is taking place whenever a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale, who incidentally lived and spanned the latter part of the 19th century into the 20th century, the relevance of that being that is the same time when God was restoring, at least in measure, a fuller understanding of the Bible by giving the Holy Spirit back to the church in a most powerful way in Azusa Street and from there elsewhere. But in that same time frame, frame, there was a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. He was a religious minister. He wrote a book in 1952 entitled The Power of Positive Thinking. The book begins with these words. This book is written to suggest techniques and to give examples which demonstrate that you do not need to be defeated by anything that you can have peace of mind, improved health, and a never-ceasing flow of energy. In short, that your life can be full of joy and satisfaction. Those words 
being written after he began to collaborate with a Freudian psychiatrist by the name of Smiley Blanton. The issue of that being the establishing of the American Foundation of Religion and Psychiatry. My point being that as, as with all deception, and I briefly remind you of Peter's observation in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, that because in the providence of God he will allow false teachers to be within, within the environs of religion, the result will in part be that the way of truth will be evil spoken of. That is to say, observers from the outside will be looking into religious circles. They will come into some sort of familiarity with the false and distorted and extreme versions of certain biblical ideas, and they will speak evil of the whole thing. And the temptation will be to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and His teachings. What Abraham did on Mount Moriah, though indeed was victorious, though indeed it evidences that he had a certain peace of mind with which he was working, it was not the result of Freudian structures, nor did he get there from first visiting the American Foundation of Religion and Psychiatry. One Episcopalian theologian gives these words as a critique of Vincent Van Peel's version of positive thinking in confession. He says that Peel has reduced God to a force and made Christianity self-centered rather than God-centered. Very little is said about the sovereign mind and purpose of God. Much is made of the things of men and the idea that men can, what men can say to themselves and can do to bring about their ambitions and purposes. Surprisingly, sadly, and I think it's to meaningful purpose that I acquaint you with this observation, that not all Christians, not all leaders in the house of God are aware that that kind of analysis is an accurate analysis. It uses the Word of God to divide between the joint and the marrow, as it were, between the evil and the good, and presents the poison in the pot so that one can recognize that though there may be a lot of vegetables in all that Van, is, Van Peel is saying, yet there are some things that he's peeled and put in that pot that isn't good. So, one example of an undiscerning commentary that has had a great deal of influence over the years is that which was once said by Billy Graham, now deceased, but once stated these words, and I quote, I don't know of anyone who had done more for the kingdom of God than Norman and Ruth Peel or have meant any more in my life for the encouragement they have given me. Whenever a certain woman, not even of Israel, a Shunammite, left back at her house, her dear child, born again under miraculous conditions, but now laying dead, traversed on a donkey of all things some distance and was met by the servant of Elisha by the name of Gehazi, 
And he addressed her at, at Elisha's instructions and said, How is it with your family? How is it with your husband? How is it with you? How is it with your child? And she said, It is well. She was working, dear friends, from the power of a risen mind. She clearly was not working from a mind that was only taking in what was on the earth and just simply looking at the circumstances. She was working from the power of a risen mind. Now that is not the same construction or construal of these sorts of ideas as was popularized by a certain Dr. Aaron Beck who in the 1960s developed a certain methodology to seek to treat the rampant mental illness of that generation, which incidentally hasn't exactly gone away. The mental illness that was manifested in anxiety and depression and forms of self-destruction. And he developed what is known by its initials as CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Very popular in the psychiatric circles of this day. Another way in which that method is supposed to eventually, you know, what, what is supposed to eventuate, what is supposed to bring about, as you research these issues, you will see that Beck's cognitive behavioral therapy is often associated with what's known as positive mind training. Very popular in the business world, and I could give you a number of examples of that. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, as translated in the King James Bible, take no thought for what you need to eat, to what you need to drink, to what you need to wear, He's talking about the power of a risen mind. He is saying, don't be anxious about these things. This is not cognitive behavioral therapy, unless you want to use that phrase and see it in its heavenly version. He is saying, your Father above in heaven already knows that you have these needs. And if you would walk in the power of a risen mind and understood these principles, then you might be up there with him, agreeing with him, and maybe closer to the realization that these things are already being taken care of by your Father and you are best serving yourself in God's kingdom by attending to things directly related to the advancement of his kingdom and spiritual matters over against having your mind filled with the things of this earth. Again, whenever Joshua and Caleb, in spite of, number one, the incredible array of circumstances that were very much opposed to them, the walled cities, the vast territory, the unfamiliarity with the region, and the giants in the land, and coupled with that, was the univocal negative report of all but their voices saying, we cannot do this. We must be smart about this. We must realize that we're not quite ready for this yet. Whenever they said, 
we are well able to take the land. Brothers and sisters, do you see with me, they were working from the power of a risen mind. They were not looking at what was in front of them. Do you think nothing was in their mind? They were saying, we are well able. This is good land. I can see myself dwelling there. Let's go. That's not the same thing as what is advocated, sadly, by the pastor of what has been billed as the most attended church in the world. The church with the largest numbers. In South Korea, a man by the name of Paul Yonggi Cho. You may have heard of him as David Yonggi Cho. He has had a quite incredible testimony, incidentally. But among other things, among things that he has written, one book that he has written touches upon these ideas. It goes under the name of the fourth dimension. I give you a quotation from that book. He says, visions and dreams are the language of the fourth dimension. And the Holy Spirit communicates through them. Only through a vision and a dream can you visualize and dream bigger pictures. Excuse me, bigger churches through vision. You can visualize a new mission field. You can visualize the increase of your church. Through visualization and dreaming, you can incubate your future and hatch the results. Well, I know I'm dating myself just a wee bit with some of these quotations, but I assure you they are germinal of the sort of ideas that still are very much about us in the ministries of the Joel Olsteins, and I won't give you a whole array of names here. My primary objective this evening is not critiquing these things, but again, I'm seeking to teach on this topic in a way that is edifying to your soul and I need you to know that I am teaching on this topic while being quite aware that there are distortions of the scriptural teaching that God's people are leery of. And while I don't want to talk you out of your leeriness, out of the distortions, I do want to make sure that you open your heart to the power of God's word. And so I continue to date myself just a wee bit when I relay to you the recommendation that was given to this edition of Yonggi Cho's book, which was published in 1979, and I read you the words of a certain Dr. Robert Schuler. Some of you who are a little older will know of whom I'm referring, to whom I'm referring. He says this in the opening recommendation of Cho's fourth dimension book. I haven't the time to digress into what the fourth dimension is all about presently. But he says this, and I quote, Don't try to understand it. Just start to enjoy it. It's true. It works. I tried it. Thank you, David Yonggi Cho, for allowing the Holy Spirit to give this message to us and to the world God loves you, and so do I. There's no point in mocking these sorts of things, brothers and sisters, because if you mock this sort of thing, you engender the wrong kind of disposition. The kind of disposition that, that should summon up in your soul is one of grief 
one of sorrow, one of regret. Because when you associate the Holy Spirit with these kind of ideas and your previous sentence, don't try to understand it. Just start to enjoy it. It's true. It works. And you are a religious leader that affects the thinking of multitudes of people as these two men combined certainly did. And one of them still does. Oh, he's up in his 80s, but nonetheless, still a very influential figure. When you are associating these things with the Holy Spirit, well, brothers and sisters, it's a serious matter. It is right along the lines of the sorts of things that Paul warned about. Some shall turn their ears away from hearing the truth and shall be seduced. But while that is errant, it is not some mere vision, some incubated picture that was working. Whenever there were Syrians surrounding the prophet Elisha, and he had a young understudy with him, not Gehazi at this time, but a young understudy with him who was quite concerned, as I suppose anybody living in the natural would be. When you are alone with your little prophet's mantle, whatever that's going to do for you, surrounded by Assyrians with their spears and whatever else they had, and his young understudy says, Master, alas, what shall we do? And Elisha prayed, and said, Lord, I pray that you would open his eyes, that he would see that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, it may be that you need to go back into 2 Kings chapter 6 and read the account for yourself in order to recognize that nothing in that account says that Elisha's eyes were opened. Nothing in that account says that Elisha ever saw those angelic beings surrounding and protecting them. He just says, Lord, open his eyes. He obviously isn't able to live in the power of a risen mind and to know that this is true and not be looking on the circumstances. So Lord, since he can't do this, let's give him a little bit of help. Let's try to show him that it's true so maybe next time he will do it. So, Lord, open his eyes and show him what I already know, what I'm already seeing. I'm not staring at these circumstances. And we're told that the Lord opened the young man's eyes and he saw the hills filled with the armies of the Lord. Whenever Simeon, now we're working from the New Testament in Luke chapter 2, the elderly Simeon held within his arms a little baby, Passed on to him by his mother Mary, she said, his name is Jesus. He held this little baby, and he said, now mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you reflect on some of these things when you have more time, and you'll get a lot of nectar out of them. He is working from the power of a risen mind. He's looking on this little baby. And he's saying, I can depart in peace now. Brothers and sisters, this little baby has not yet grown in wisdom and stature. This little baby has not commenced his ministry yet. 
As a matter of fact, this same Simeon knows that this little baby is going to go through quite a struggle in his life, for he says to his mother, a sword shall pierce thine heart. This little baby is set for the rise and fall of many. Now that means a law is going to come against Jesus. And yet he's about to die and saying, I'm all set. I have seen the salvation of the Lord. I see a little baby in his arms that nobody else recognizes. No one's walking around and saying, there's the Savior, there's the Savior. He is working from what the Bible presents to us, what we will be talking about this evening, of the power of a risen mind. And there's a version of this that does need to be embraced, embraced in its simplicity. There's a version of our relationship with God that sounds like this. You have not because you ask not. And there is a version of what God has to say about the way we think that works like this. As you think in your heart, so are you. That those ideas, either one of those, can be taken and be distorted and be isolated and be made the topic of everything like a magic pill. That's all you need to know. I do recognize we probably could, to be honest with you. I could start envisioning a church filled with people if I were to embrace this type of psychological approach and articulate it with great eloquence. Then we probably would fill the people, but what of it, brothers and sisters? While that, I grant, does express in some meaningful way my opposition to that approach, Yet, dear friends, that does not mean in market well that this pastor does not want to lead God's sheep into the blessings that the Lord has for his people and to see God's sheep founded upon the rock of truth. For yet again, I say to you, whenever Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, with tears in his eyes and not the tears of the sorrow of death, but the tears of the pain of the realization that the ones he loved the most were not yet able, willing, at the level to embrace God and the faith that was required to see Lazarus ministered to by the Lord Jesus Christ, for it was both Martha and Mary and all the Jews that could only weep and could only say, if you had been here, my brother would be li living, who could only tell him, what he obviously could have deduced on his own, having purposely waited until he went to Bethany, telling him that he's been dead for four days. Whenever Jesus stood in front of that sepulcher and spoke into a tomb that contained a rotting body, and we are told he lifted his eyes to heaven, for there was nothing on this earth that was encouraging him. Not a thing. Not the closest associates of his were encouraging his faith. He lifted his eyes to heaven, prayed a short prayer, and then said, Lazarus, 
come forth. And he said before he prayed, I know what's going to happen. Father, I know you always hear me. I'm praying this way for them. It's as if he is doing what Elisha did for his young understudy. Lord, open their eyes that they can see what is possible in faith. That is the power of a risen mind. Whenever Jesus, just before his own crucifixion, prayed what we know as his high priestly prayer, before his crucifixion, before Gethsemane, before the whippings, before the nails being driven into his wrists and his feet. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son. Well, if you think this is just cheap talk, then just remember how easy all of this is when you face your own persecution or some other lesser trial and the Holy Spirit is stirring up in you and asking you, why don't you just confess the glory of the manifestation, the glory indeed in this case, and it's why I end with this particular example, because Jesus told his own disciples, yes, I'm going to be arrested. Yes, I'm going to be treated very badly, very ill, very sinfully. I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise on the third day. That, and here the entendre that's intended, that is the power of a risen mind. I'd like to read to you from the New King James Version. Colossians chapter 3 and the first four verses. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 3 begins, If then you, or in the King James, if ye then. It is translated, therefore, in some translations, properly or within the range of what the Greek term is. It's an appropriate translation. I bring this up because the remark of the beginning of the chapter, which constitutes what we're looking into, the power of a risen mind, is saying, seeing that something is true, seeing that something is the case, then let's do this. If ye then, seeing that this is the case, then let's do this. I want to acquaint you with what the referent is. What is the case? Now, of course, there's a fairly substantial context for this. For our purposes this evening, we will need to focus directly on some particulars. I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, which, of course, precedes Colossians chapter 3 and gives to us the context. 
Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7, we'll pick it up there, speaks of us being rooted and built up in him. En auto. Very significant. You say, Brother William, why is that so significant? Well, you were here and you heard me relay various versions of positive thinking that compete with the biblical teaching. And every single one of them, in one way or another, does not root the behavior directly in the Lord Jesus Christ. It roots it in the fourth dimension. It roots it in the power of your own thinking. It roots it in some sort of magical, mystical, Jungian ability to envision things to transpire. It basically tells you, as they often do, that anybody can do this. This is not what the context is. The context is you need to be rooted and built up in the one and only true Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be in him. Now, we will visit this theme throughout this study, and it isn't my disposition to be some sort of a Grinch, especially given the season we're in, um, and steal from you all of your energy to start envisioning things and start building and creating your own world as you want it when I tell you that we've just separated quite a bit of churchgoers from the possibility of living in the version that I'm preaching to you that is the biblical version of the power of of a risen mind. If you don't like to be in Jesus, if you are not in him, if you don't have an interest in being rooted and built up in Jesus to start with, then you really have no claim to this that we're talking about. Indeed, in the eighth verse, Paul, who was going to go on in the third chapter and advocate, set your mind above, first tells us, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceits after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after whom? After Christ. Do you see with me again? This is rooted in Jesus. This is a byproduct of the benefits of his resurrection and power. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now you want to be paying attention to the phrases that we are going to be reading here in just a few more verses while we're looking into the second chapter. Why? Because in a moment... I'm going to bring you to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to show you that that letter that was also written from Rome while Paul was in prison, which was sent out contemporaneously with the epistle to the Colossians, that letter is dealing with the very same themes that you will be reading in Colossians chapter 2. And I want to acquaint you with the way in which Paul formulates them in Ephesians chapter 1, for a very important reason. So pay attention. First of all, I draw your attention to the repetition of the phrase, en auto. Did you notice with me, first of all, in the, well, we already started in the 7th verse, but look with me in the ninth verse. In him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That 
refers to Christ himself. That in him is associated simply and directly to him, about him. It's in Jesus, not in us. Never will all the fullness of the Godhead dwell in you bodily. I hope that's not news to you. But in him, that is the case. But it's very interesting. You might say it's just a simple byproduct of grammar. I'm not so sure that it is, but even if it is, it still works very nicely. The exact same construction, the same preposition, the same pronoun is used in the very next verse, in the 10th verse, and says, and you are complete in him. Now, I draw your attention to that phrase, not only for its edifying connection to the ninth verse, but also those of you who are Bible readers will know one of the features of the Ephesian epistle is the ubiquitousness of this phrase, in him, in him, in Christ. It's just all over, especially in the first couple of chapters. In him. I say this because part of appreciating what we're talking about this evening will be used, is, is aided by your recognition that uh, this is not some isolated little concept that we're pulling out of Colossians chapter 3 and, and using it as a launching pad to basically teach Norman Vincent Peelism or some other thing like that. I want you to see that the association between the things Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 2 and in Ephesians 1, which we will get to shortly. But let's continue. You are complete in him, in Jesus, who is the head of all principality and power. Principalities and powers, I, I want you to see, is one theme. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, how about this? Buried with him. Essentially equivalent to in him. Buried with him. Note with me. The topic of burial. Note that with me. Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also you are risen. Note the topic of risen. Risen with him or in him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is the context from which Paul is working when he says... If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are about, above. Having talked about our burial in Christ Jesus, having talked about Christ's power over the principalities and the like. Indeed, in the 20th verse, you will see if you look at that quickly with me, he talks there about being dead. With Christ. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, if you are dead, if you were buried with Christ, then why don't you enter into 
the implications, the other side of the coin. If you are dead with Christ, then why don't you live in the power of a risen mind with Christ? That's his argument. Now, if you would, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1 so that we can briefly make note of the similarity of language and subject matter. Because there's something that's very important that I want to emphasize out of this context. Very, very important. Beginning in the 15th verse. Wherefore I also, Paul says to the Ephesians, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. How many of you know that if you were to go over to the first chapter in the book of Colossians, Paul would be saying, I don't cease to pray for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus in the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, wherever you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and heard of the grace of God and truth, and so on. In other words, how many of you realize that what you just read In terms of what Paul was saying to the Ephesians, he also said to the Colossians. What's the significance of this? The significance of this, for the moment, is he is saying, I grant that you have faith in Jesus Christ. I grant that you love the saints. I am thankful for who you are in Christ. I pray for you. And not just generally speaking, I pray for you. But note it well, dear brothers and sisters. He is saying, look with me into the 17th verse. He is going to say, I'm praying that you would get wisdom, revelation, enlightenment, hope, riches, inheritance, power. I'm going to read those verses in just a moment, but I want to emphasize this to your soul. He says, wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith. If you have a version of the Christian life that amounts to something like this. I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the triunity. I was water baptized. I go to the meeting on a regular basis. I have my statement of faith, and I've read the Westminster Confession, and I agree with it all. I've got faith in Jesus Christ. I've got my theology right. And I also love the saints. Therefore, I will be a victorious Christian. As long as The pastor is preaching faith in Jesus week after week after week. As long as we're advocating love, the brothers and sisters, then everyone will be a successful overcoming Christian. Paul doesn't agree with that. It may sound weird to your ears if I say that he thinks you need something more than faith in Christ Jesus. And I don't mind it being weird to your ears because that's a little tricky way of saying it to get your attention. But it's basically what he says. What I would say he's saying is, I want you to enter into the full implications of what your faith in Christ Jesus should bring along with it. And you will be digging into those treasures for the rest of your life. And anyone who thinks you're a religious expert, and you know, there are such entities within the household of God. They don't always 
It's not just limited to those that have theological degrees. There are some people that they just go to sleep on you. They're just bored. They're just whatever. They just are complacent. They just think they've got it all set. And they lack the humility. They lack the simplicity. They lack the childlike disposition that is reaching and searching for more of what God has for me and is willing to hear simple things like, you have not because you ask not says the leader of the Jerusalem churches, old James, man of holiness, integrity, and faith. You have not because you're not asking. That's your problem. You say, well, he said also you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. That's right. I just said he was a holy man, and he preached the whole counsel of God. He didn't run away, run around saying to all the churches, abracadabra, just name it, claim it, confess it. It's all going to happen as they all deflate when they can't make it all the way through life. He says, you also have not. Because when you ask, you ask amiss. And then somebody stands up and says, James, you're not preaching the faith message because you're now talking about our lives and our tongues and our sinful self-desires. He says, no, I'm preaching the faith message. I want you to get it when you ask. And I don't want you to go before God with your conscience condemned. Because if you go before God and your heart condemns you, God knows more than you know about your heart. And you're not going to receive the things that you have asked of him until you first repent of your sin because he's not going to receive your prayer. For if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord's not even going to hear you. Right after Mark eleven twenty four, which tells you what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Then it tells you, go and forgive anybody that you have ought against. And if you don't, I mean, there you go. Well, what I'm trying to articulate to your hearts, dear brothers and sisters, is coming back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, a church that was rich in understanding, that had a genuine faith in Christ, he's saying, I'm praying for you. God help those. God help you. I'm trying to say, if, you, if you're an Ephesian, you can't let Paul say to you, I'm praying for you, that these things, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above principalities, powers, might, dominions, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I say to you, dear friends, there's nothing inappropriate with my reading of that in an energetic style, for that's exactly the way it was written. That's exactly the way it was flowing out of Paul's heart. To do it justice, somebody has to seek to sort of capture the reiteration of power and blessing and glory and hope and inheritance that he's trying to communicate. 
You may have noticed with me the theme of burial and resurrection. As was read in Colossians chapter 2, you may have seen the theme of the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. You may have seen with me the commonality of, as I mentioned, the principalities and powers being mentioned. I don't know if you remember that in Colossians chapter 2, we read about Christ's headship. You are complete in Him, which is the head. Here, too, in the um, 21st verse, we're taught, we read about Christ is the head. Or 22nd verse, Christ is the head. Treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We read in the 18th verse, and in Colossians chapter 2, we are told that in Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you are complete in Him, which is the head. I could go on and show the similarities between the two portions of Ephesians 1 and Colossians chapter 2. The relevance of this is the following. In a way that's a little bit more dramatic... Ephesians chapter 1 emphasizes the available power of God. The exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. You say, oh, I believe that there was a mighty demonstration of power that was exhibited when Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, I'm glad that you do, but you're only listening to part of the implication. The implication is not simply that on some historic day, shortly after the resurrection, or I should say certainly act, you know, after Nisan 17, that Christ was risen from the dead in 30 AD or thereabouts, depending on how you work the chronology. That is to say, yes, that power was wrought, but the whole point of this passage is that power that was manifested there and demonstrated there, is now available in Christ to usward who believe, to the believer. You say, I didn't think Paul preached that sort of way. That sounds too Norman Vincent Peale-istic to me. It sounds like he's trying to be Joel Osteen. It's not one of Paul's better times. Oh, I disagree with you. I think he would say to you, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. I think he would say to you, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I think he would sing in a prison with Silas in the midnight hour. I think he went through all kinds of difficulties because he learned of God not to look at what is aggravating you, but to realize his grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Get your mind up here, Paul. I know the Judaizers, they're a fix, aren't they? Ooh, what a tribe they are. And that's got you so perplexed, so worked up, so anxious. And in his case, for a godly concern. But even then, he says, you don't look at this from down here. I'm not giving you an earthly resolution. The solution is get your head above, up in my glory. Look all around at the glory up here. And recognize, it's going to work out. How could it not? We're all right up here, Paul. We're, we're all right. I know down there, you know, I went down there to fix the thing.
thing. Don't tell me I don't know what a mess it is. My son went through it every day. But he's up here, and so am I. And he said, it's finished. It's going to work out, Paul. And surely it has. Thank God the Judaizers came, brother. Thank God the Judaizers came, because now I've got Galatians. I've got Colossians. Thank God the Corinthians were carnal, because now I've got First and Second Corinthians. And then thank God the Philippians were the joy and rejoicing of his heart, because he needed a break somewhere. But even about them, he said, well, you didn't quite support me as you should have, but we won't talk about that right now, he said. I want to give you three central ideas as we seek to understand this theme biblically. Three key ideas. Number one, the power of a risen mind as we look into this exegetically, that is to say, we look into Colossians chapter 3 and see what it's inviting us and encouraging us to do. Number one, it is exhorting us to change headquarters. Number two, it instructs us that we need to cooperate with God. Number three, it is advocating this in the interest of developing a deeper relationship with God. So the power of a risen mind is about changing headquarters. It's about cooperating with God. And it's about the development of an affection or a desire to have a deeper relationship with God. Let's begin to look at these concepts. First of all, I submit to you that the power of a risen mind as taught by Paul and taught by the Bible is all about changing headquarters. Now you may recognize a double entendre there. A nice one. There can be nice double entendres. And this is one of them. Your head needs to go to different quarters. Now, that concept for many people, and maybe even historically, harkens back to a military context where the army would be spread out over a certain space of land. But one particular tent or whatever structure they had, nowadays a building, would be the command and control center where all the generals were, all the strategists lived. And it was in a certain segment, in a certain quarter. It just means division. Let's take this ground, let's divide it up, and over in that quarter is where the heads are. This is headquarters. When the scriptures say to us, if ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and then tells us how you're going to best seek those things, because you might say, as far as it is instructing you thus far, well, yeah, I'll seek those things while I'm down here, but it says, set your mind on things above. It is instructing us to bring our head to different quarters quarters of the heavenlies. Now, quite obviously, since we are appealing to Scripture and not your emotions and not some psychological mumbo-jumbo and really, frankly, demonic spiritual energy, 
Because these things do have an effect. You can work this up and you can release demons of deception. Incidentally, Cho was saved out of Buddhism. I'm not that sure that all the Buddhism left him. I'm sorry, I don't say those things very whimsically because I have respect for, well, I don't know how to exactly say it and make it simple. So I'll just leave it there. Because I'll conf- I, I don't want to confuse anybody. If I told you I have respect for Mother Teresa, you might get confused about that. I, oh, I could really confuse you and say I have respect for the devil. I've probably now really gone too far for you. What I mean by that is I don't take these people lightly. I know what lightness looks like. There's lots of it. And, and we pray for them and we love them and we want to see them saved. Uh, empty shells of people. I guarantee you the devil no empty shell. I'm sober and I'm vigilant. And I take him seriously. And I don't speak foolishly about him. I say, the Lord rebuke thee, as did Michael the archangel. And similarly, there are individuals that have some substantive component to their life. And they aren't to be dismissed just whimsically. Because you may do that, but others won't. When they hear their whole testimony, and it's quite remarkable what this man was saved out of and so on... So I don't say it with bravado or with youthful imbecility. I say, I'm not sure he got all the Buddhism out of him. He even appeals to Buddhism at times and says, this is what we used to do, so why don't we do it now? (laughs) Well, you know, you're not going to change headquarters unless you believe that such a place exists. So... Let me make the case that such a place does exist. The same term translated above, set your affection on things above, is used by the Lord Jesus himself when in conversation, really in dispute with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He said, you are from beneath. I am from above. When Paul is addressing the Galatians, he speaks about Jerusalem. That is from above. When Paul is characterizing the Christian calling, that which he is so committed to and so focused on, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize. And this could be translated of the above calling. In many versions, it's translated as the upward calling. In the King James, you know it's translated as the high calling. The Greek term is the precise same term as is translated above in Colossians chapter 3. In other words, we have a calling to above. Because above is real. It exists. So first of all, I say to you, you've got to believe that such a place exists. And I hope you will consider that. I hope you will think about that. I mean, you might say to me, well, Brother William, you know, I mean, don't, doesn't everybody believe in heaven? Yes, you and your neighbor and uh, the Muslims and uh, the Jehovah Witnesses and, you know, just about everybody. The Greeks believed in it. You have to cross, you know, the river Styx to get over to it eventually, you know, as part of your journey, I'm saying. I'm not talking about some sort of vague sort of thing, a childhood concept of above. I'm trying to say, 
that uh, you have to recognize that this isn't just um, idiomatic speech, figurative speech, colorful language when he says, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You've got to believe, I'm not necessarily saying it's some geographical spot you've got to envision, but you've got to believe that there is a location that is above that is real and meaningful, and that's where God wants you to be now in your thinking. You know, you're not going to embrace these new quarters if you don't believe they exist. That's why I'm taking the time to make this point. Dear friends, I could talk about this all day long. And if I want to give you the rudiments of the world as a version of the positive thinking and confession concepts, I could stir this up right now. I could appeal to what's already in your self-centered hearts and I could start working this all up because you already know that territory. You're already there. I just have to tell you how to live this way in that territory or let Oprah do it. One of us can do it well. What I'm saying is you're not going to listen to what I'm saying. You're not going to realize the possibilities of what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 unless you hear the Bible say to you, I would like, that is God saying, I'd like to introduce you, my child, to another location. I want you to pack up and move your head to different quarters. I'm telling you, in the process of activating these concepts, one of the transitions you need to go to is to become convinced in your mind that such a place really does exist and God is inviting you there to live in your thoughts. Along these lines, I remind you of a passage that is so familiar that uh, you might take it for granted, but I tell you it is just another hammer swing to pound this point home. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That may not ring so powerfully in your ear unless I were to tell you that the things that Paul has in mind are the exact same things that he is speaking of in Colossians chapter 3. Now, you might feel like that is sorry news because the things you thought he was referring to were, you know, the, the cars and the houses and the boats and the boys and the girls and whatever other thing down this earth you've got your attention on and you've been in the habit of claiming and confessing and saying it's got to be mine and all the rest. And uh, no, let's start biblically. If you really need a car and a boat and something else, we can cover that in due time. I'm saying to you, and I haven't the time, as a matter of fact, to develop this in its entirety, but I'll give you enough hints so that you can see this is true, and indeed I've taught on this extensively in the past. Hebrews 11, 1 has a context. The things that Paul is referring to and will go on to speak of in the following verses that comprise the 11th chapter are very definite. It doesn't leave out that hamburger you so badly want and you've claimed and you're confessing it. But 
there's a way in which the way this works is God says, I'll give you the things of this earth if you first desire the things that are above. So there's a sense in which you don't really have to spend all your faith energy on things below, all the material stuff. Which is not to say, don't pray. By the way, if you do need a hamburger, very seriously, be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made on unto God. If you've got anxiety, I'm very serious here, it's a little silly, but still true. If you've got anxiety about a hamburger because you really would like one, then search your heart. See if it isn't a selfish desire. See if it's something maybe God will bless you with. And if you have no reason to think he wouldn't, and maybe you've just come off a long fast or something, and it's just what you'd really like, then he loves you. Then pray for it. But that's not what Hebrews 11 is talking about, not directly. In the 10th chapter, we read that the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers thereon to complete or perfect. I bring that verse to your attention because I can only in a limited way make my case. You'll have to talk to me afterwards if you need further convincing or do your own Bible study. But I bring that to your attention to show you that the things refers to the things that are to come. Christ himself was one of these things for the believers in the Old Testament. But also all the things that the prophecies speak of in terms of the blessings that God is going to bring to the believer. The blessing of redemption and restoration and a pure language and a millennial kingdom and no tears and no sorrow, and if you will, even the New Jerusalem with its pearly gates and its golden streets, things above. Oh, indeed, my brothers and sisters, you can use the idea to, to, to claim your new shoes. I have no problem with that. But I want to say something to you that faith, the real biblical faith that can then go out and claim the new shoes or the new coat or whatever you might need, this biblical faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the belief rooted and grounded in Christ that this walk that I'm in has an end result of the inheritance that God has. I've been born again who has begotten us again onto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, onto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven. You don't want me to teach a version of faith, brothers and sisters, that reduces all of this down to the next house you want to claim. I don't have a problem with that if you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, he has blessed us with a house. Can you imagine that, my brother? The whole neighborhood thought we were crazy because we moved into a house and we rented it and I did literally tens of thousands of dollars of work on the house and put my labor into it. And I had neighbors telling me, you're crazy. I had a conviction God put us there on the corner of Mount Pleasant and Grandview. Of course, that's where the God, God wanted us, on Christian Hill. That God wanted us there for his purposes. And I could tell the testimony as to how once they came to us and we didn't have a resolution, they said, we're going to sell the house. We had no resolution. 
But the Lord worked it out. Where now that house is in our name, paid for. So, he'll do that. And he manifested that home, by the way, when I returned from a trip to China, during which I ministered nonstop for about a month, just meeting after meeting of one sort or another. While I was away in China, where we were presently renting, my wife got an eviction notice, which was illegal, because it was not about anything we did. They just didn't want us there anymore. It's a long story. I haven't the time. Can you believe that, that I even have that concept in my head? She got the notice while I was in China. By the time I got back and we started looking, God had this house for us, which isn't anything like it is now, but he has a plan. And it's not anything like perhaps maybe someday it'll be, but he has a plan. So I, I'm not opposed to that, brothers and sisters. But I am saying that when we read in the 13th verse of a certain type of believer of whom it is said they all died in faith, do you know that doesn't mean that they were claiming their healing they died anyway? That's not what it's talking about. If you think that that's your verse for you or some friend who didn't receive the answer to a promise, there may be a verse somewhere that will help you understand that, but it's not this one. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Well, of course they didn't receive them. Nor have a number of other people whom I have known who have died during the 30-something years that I've been walking with Jesus, like Sister Jan, for example. She didn't receive the promise, not the ones I'm talking about. For example, the promise of the rapture, the promise of the resurrection from the dead. The promise of a new glorified body? The promise of no sorrow? Maybe the promise even of the salvation of her children? You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about things above. They didn't receive these promises, but listen to the language. Having seen them afar off. There's your language for what we're talking about this evening. That is... I'll use the phrase, the power of a risen mind. They walk through this earth, dear brothers and sisters, in a darker light than we have, even on biblical concepts. You know, you might rejoice that God gives you insight, you know what I'm saying, into some theological issue, and that buoys you, and it enlivens you to live the Christian faith. They had a lot less light than we did, but enough that if they lived in the vision and the illumination, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1, and they gave their hearts humbly and simply, let me tell you something, God's under no obligation to convince your head on your terms. Humble yourself before God. Become like a little child. You say then, I'm to be gullible? I didn't say be gullible. There's a distinction between humility and gullibility. Humble yourself before God. Get beneath his awesome, powerful word. May the churches take on an awe of God's word. We would get so much more done if that were the case. His word would have free course and be glorified. And we would be able to establish concepts like these. And no one would pop up and say, you don't preach the faith message. Listen to what these 
believers did. They saw these things afar off. Where did they see them? In their mind. You say, that sounds like Norman Vincent Peale. Yes, it does. It does. And I regret that he perverted this beautiful thought, but I'm aware he perverted it, and I'm not going to let his perversion stop me from God's victory. I'm going to see things in my mind, not because I'm rooted and grounded in William and the fourth dimension and my visionary ability to incubate the possibilities. And I see everybody here, and I'm going to incubate it. And incubate with me, won't you? No. But in Jesus Christ, the one that I worship and follow, because I have faith in the substance of things hoped for. And this is just a small little drip. The last thing I want to say about this particular directive in terms of you've got to change headquarters. The command and control center of your life. If your mind is not above looking down on the principalities and powers instead of under up at the darkness of this world, there's a way of recognizing the darkness of this world. There's a way of talking about it and informing people. There is indeed a way of reaching out to people who are under it, who live in it. They sit in the swamp of it. But I'll tell you what, you're not helping anybody if you're among those, and I've met them, you look at everything from below. You get so tied up in the darkness of this world. That's all you talk about. And you stare at everybody else as if, if they don't join in to your, um, you know, your darkened version of all existence, that they just aren't illuminated. The morbid interpretation of life that anybody with eyes can see if you just look around and see the darkness of this time. Now, some of us want to pray for you and say, Lord, open his or her eyes that they can see that up on the hills and in Christ, while we know the Syrians are there, they think we don't see the Syrians. What they don't realize, and I really mean this, I mean this, I mean this, I've said this sort of thing for years, I'm going to say it again. You manifest how little you know when you run with the message like a hymn he has of old and all agitated, this is what's going on, this is what's going on, this is what's going on. If you ever get tempered, you too will have to adopt the policy of not having fanfare about all these things because it's so ubiquitous, it's so everywhere, that it gets boring to talk about it. I already said, if you need to point out a few things about Nero or Alexander the Coppersmith, or say that so-and-so is a fox, then say your piece. But don't, number one, talk about it from below. There's a way of saying, oh, Herod, you know, you go tell that fox. God is in the above. He's not on the beneath. Now, this isn't deism. There's limitations to what we're saying. I'm not saying he's left this world in an absolute sense. But I am saying that he gave you a pretty good message when he delivered you out of the power of darkness, which, incidentally, the powers that constitute the darkness of this age are in the second heavens. So they're not even down on this level. They're up a level. And he delivered you out of the upper level, second heavens, powers of darkness. And he translated you 
into the kingdom of his dear son, which is above. I mean, that's what God did when he saved you. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And then he sends you back as an ambassador. All right, so he has a purpose in this earth, but you go back to this earth and you say, we beseech you and Christ said, be reconciled to God because he's coming back to judge this earth because the prince of this world has been already judged. God's done with this world. He's done with the rudiments of this world. He's done with it. He's not here. He's up above. I'm thank God he is. Thank God he is. We could, we could enlarge upon this and have on other occasions. You know, I'm glad that God isn't trying to salvage the Titanic piece by piece, but he points me to the nether shore and says, get in the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ and set your eyes over there because that's where the future is. It's not here. It's the truth. Peter would say, look around you. All this is going to be dissolved. How should you live then, Christian? I have a suggestion. Why don't you get your mind on things above? Why don't you set your affection on things above? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Because I'm talking in the most straightforward implications to all hearts. If you have a business, then you ought to give it a certain degree of attention. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord and not unto men. For you serve the Lord Christ. But the best way to do that is to realize that your business is a temporal institution that doesn't compare in the least to your relationship with God and your spiritual position in Christ, etc. And by the way, that's taught. That's taught in the prescriptive prayer of the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you best pray that when you live up there in heaven, you look around in heaven, that's your territory where you think, yes. And then you pray best about those things being done on earth. Secondly, secondly this evening, this idea of the power of a risen mind is about cooperating with God. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to Colossians chapter 2. How does Colossians chapter 3 begin? If you then be risen with Christ. What does Paul associate, you know, the idea of risen in Christ with and so on? He associates it with our baptism, our burial in Christ. Read with me what we find in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. We are buried with Jesus in baptism. Well, here's some news for us. Here is something that maybe you didn't think about when you were being water baptized. That that very act, that very act of humility, has an implication that is utterly powerful. It is the flip side as it were, of your burial. For example, I can put it this way. There's a context to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. The context is verse 12. You were buried. If you were buried in Christ, then he can deduce from that, then you're risen with Christ. They go together. If you're buried with him when you got out, you're risen with him. And if you can willingly 
embrace, you know, in your spirit that I will go to my death. I will be buried with Christ. I will humble myself and all that. Then, brothers and sisters, I'm trying to say that God also wants you to see this glorious other side. And it isn't humility to say, well, I don't know if I should go in that direction. That could be presumptuous. Oh, no, God will say to you, all right, then, maybe your carcass needs to fall in the wilderness if you think it's presumptuous to take the land. No, he says, you are risen with him. Look with me, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. Do you remember with me? In Ephesians chapter 1, all this discussion about Jesus being risen far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named. And then it goes on to say, and well, let me just first say, some interpretation of that can be, isn't that great for Jesus? And we certainly assent to that. Paul turns it right back on us, not in a way that was meant to be rude, but hopefully you're there to rejoice with him. And he says, no, he's the head. Well, yes, of course he's the head. He made a show of them openly. He triumphed, triumphed over them in the cross. He's above. He, doesn't, he isn't under the cloud of darkness on a daily basis. He isn't uh, anxious about all that transpires, even in a place like this. He's not anxious that every pew isn't filled. He's got a plan. He turns it back on us and says, that should be your head. That is your head. That's why you need new headquarters. We'll get to it eventually, but I might as well give it to you now. Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you. Whose mind? Jesus' mind. You say, oh, that's speaking about his mind on the earth. He said while he was on the earth, yes, I'm the son of man down on earth, but I'm also in heaven. And I already gave you examples of Jesus looking at everything that came his way. And... Some people say, yeah, he did that because he's son of God. That's not quite accurate. He did that by faith, whatever the that is. Stilled the storm and the sea, multiplied the loaves and fish, raised the dead. He did it. Why, why should he then say, go and do thou likewise, or where is your faith? Do you see what I'm saying, dear friends? He, he practiced what we're preaching. And for good reason. Because this isn't hokey pokey. There, he came from above. He knows about above. I don't think he had like, like clear recollections. I'm saying he believed the word that spoke about it. And he had that vision from that perspective. I don't believe that he had like a memory where he could just see in his head unless he had a special vision from the Holy Spirit to, to see it. But then anybody could have that. Why do I say this is about cooperating with God? Well, because what does it say here? Jesus was risen through the faith of the operation of God. There is an operation of God by which Jesus was risen. And he believed that God would do that. And he received what he believed. You are invited to be raised up with Christ where he is, seated in the heavenlies. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a possibility. If ye then. That's all the language of possibility. It's not done. He's saying, hey, this is possible. This is why I'm praying for you in Ephesians chapter 1. I know you believe in Jesus. I know you love the saints, but there's more. It's possible. Let me pray for you. So, 
You have to cooperate with God. Christ already has. He cooperated by believing the promise, by speaking about it, by telling his disciples, yeah, they're going to do horrible things to me, but I'm going to be risen into the glory I had before. Now, now there's two beautiful things about that. One is the fact of his resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, and that he physically went bodily to the right hand of the Father in power, in his glorified body, the first fruits of the resurrection. None of us have tasted of that yet. No one has yet. First fruits of the resurrection. That's beautiful. You hearing me? But what's equally beautiful, don't miss this, just because you have a complete picture in Christ, know how to parse it out. Before the beauty of his bodily resurrection at the right hand of the Father, he already was there in his mind, which is to say in his heart, which is to say by faith. But let's talk about the mind, because you can talk all day long about your heart, and you try to leave a lot of loose ends until God narrows, on, narrows in on it as he does in Colossians chapter 3 and says, set your mind on things above. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, we're not talking about some power of the gray brain or something that is just about your head and not about the rest of your life. But lest you don't take this seriously, don't go talking all day long about your heart and I just believe in having a right heart before God and, you know, I need to serve the Lord with my whole heart. The Lord says you need to serve the Lord with your whole mind. And the Bible says you need to put your mind. We'll get to how that is, in many respects, a short version of saying get your heart on things above. It won't work if you don't. A dear brother, I'm here physically and spiritually. I know Paul once upon a time said, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present in the spirit. Okay, so I, I understand that. But I could not be preaching here, and neither did he, unless he was here physically and in his soul, in his spirit. Amen? Well, those two things are distinguishable technically, aren't they? Right? How can he say, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present with you in spirit? Now, I'm not talking about some disembodied spirit. I'm talking about his heart. He said, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He's saying, there's a part of me that's not limited to my body, as is with you. We could get into this at some length. I'm trying to make the point that the word of God does teach us in such detail and technicality that we can divide soul and spirit and the joint and the marrow, but they belong together. And my point is, is yes, that there is a distinction between the mind and the heart in some meaningful way. If we wanted to have a philosophical discussion or a psychological discussion even, but the way you are, where your heart is, your treasure is, there will your heart, there will your mind be also. As a man thinks, and you're going to think according to your heart. You're going to think according to your affections. As a man thinketh, that's who you are. We know who you are. We know what's going on in your heart by what's occupying your mind. 
So you need to cooperate with God. You need to believe in the power of God that has already declared your status, that your citizenship is from heaven, is in heaven. I've taken you out of the kingdom of darkness. I've raised you to heavenly places. If you look into Romans chapter 6, we're going to be looking again at uh, baptism and its implications. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now, there was a perspective about the Christian calling that was listening to all these wonderful things about grace and whatever and was not only making an improper, shall we say, theological deduction that, well, maybe we should sin so that grace can abound because to whom much is forgiven, much love comes. Who's forgiven much loves much, you know, and something like that. Let's magnify more of God's grace because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It was not only a theological faulty deduction, it was a positional faulty posture. When Paul says, God forbid, he's basically saying, where in the world do you live? He's saying, what do you mean? Shall we continue in sin? Who would ask such a question when you're at the right hand of God and you're looking around and you live up in the heavenlies and you realize you've been translated up there and you're not under the earth. You're not under all these sinful things that pull at the heart and draw you daily into sin and so on. There is such a thing as not sinning and having this more powerful position so that sin is not abounding so that week after week after week you come up here and you kneel at the altar and we ask God to forgive you for how you fell again over and over again and he's arguing don't you know if you were buried with him in baptism you should have been raised by the glory of the father and walk in newness of life and let me tell you something you're not going to know anything about that in any realistic way unless you apply Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 Get your mind above. Let me prove that to you. Look in the 11th verse of this same chapter. Oh, so let's see. Let's start with verse 10. For in that Jesus died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Where is Christ your head? He's now not under this earth, not going through all of this difficulty and all the rest of it day after day after day. He could say to us, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the rejoinder could be, well, that's nice, Jesus, that you overcame the world. And I guess I should be of good cheer to applaud you or something. That's a complete lackluster understanding. You need Ephesians chapter 1. You need a whole bunch of things. You need, Ephesians, you need Hebrews chapter 11. Let me tell you what's going on here. What is being taught by Paul. And he's no enthusiast. What's being taught by Paul, it's there for you to read any day of the week. He is saying, Jesus lives in newness of life. He lives unto God above. And now you know what he's going to say? 
Why don't you believe that that's who you are in Christ? Why don't you partake of his resurrected power to live above sin? When you face sin, why don't you reckon in your mind yourself to be dead indeed unto sin and to be alive unto God? You say, well, I'd be lying. No, you wouldn't be lying. You would be believing. Unless you don't believe it, then yes, you would be lying. And then I would recommend Norman Vincent Peale. One of his books might get you through life a little bit better than otherwise would happen. But if you want to believe the word, then that's why he prayed what he prayed. Oh, you believe in Jesus? That's wonderful. Oh, you love the saints? That's great. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you because there's an exceeding incredible power that is available in Christ. And it's not hokey pokey. It's real. It's resurrection power. The apostles lived in it. And to the extent that they didn't, God had to do a work in them, like Peter, early on after the resurrection, where he just didn't know what to do with his life. Why don't we go fishing? What an irony. Future apostle upon whom the church is going to be built. What a, what a place in Christ he has. He already has it in principle. He doesn't know what to do. I guess I'll go fishing. So Jesus had to wake him up and say, no, Peter, you need to get your head above. You need to feed my sheep. How are you going to feed my sheep? I got I to gotta pay for my bills. You know what I'm saying? If, if I tell you to feed my sheep and you do that in service to the risen Christ and we have this conversation, not just on the shore of Galilee, but after I ascend... You go back to the upper room. You start praying. When you're praying, you remember I ascended and I'm up there and I'm the head to the church. I'm above these principalities and powers and all the rest of it. You, and I can empower you and I can do all sorts of things. You start believing that and then we get Acts chapter 2 and then we get Peter standing and then you don't hear anything else about Peter having a problem about fishing. And so this reckon term, logizomai, is a really a legal term. It means take advantage of your legal right in Christ and activate the benefits of his res resurrection and reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. This is, a whole, this is a whole teaching in itself that I can't digress into. Just the non-hokey-pokey, but very worthwhile mental exercise of when confronted with sin, looking at it and saying, I'm dead in Christ to that. I'm dead to it. I am dead to it. I am dead in the name of Jesus to that temptation. There's a lot of power in that. A lot of power. It's the same term that's translated in these words about the mind. When I was a child, Paul says, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. Same term. I thought. Think of yourself as being dead indeed to sin. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, put away those childish things. Well, when you become mature in Christ, you change the way you think. Lastly, the power of a, re of a resurrected mind is about growing in a deeper relationship with God. You know, the versions that I began this message with along these lines, it's all about 
you. It's all about how you can create your own reality. It's all about what you can envision and what your dreams are and how you never have to have a defeated day in your life. That isn't actually the orientation of what Paul is advocating here. Now, I will tell you that the outcome has those very same conceptual objectives in mind. Now, they're very different because they come through the Bible and they come in the path that I'm going to tell you about. But they have the same conceptual things. Like Paul would say, rejoice in the Lord always. I am more than a conqueror through him that loved me or loves me. Right? But I want you to see what the objective is here. And when you recognize that this is what this is all about, then number one, I've done you the service of teaching you the mind message, if you will, of the Bible faithfully so that we don't propagate some new thing and we become world famous for some enthusiastic set of things we can do with our minds and we fill the churches and we start a worldwide ministry and I get my teeth polished so I'm all nice and white teeth and I get a plastic plexiglass pulpit and we get the flowers and Joe Lynn's gets to stand side by side with me and it just goes on and on and on and that sort of thing you know you think it sounds funny it's done it's done day in and day out exactly that let me tell you something Joel Osteen Norman Vincent Peale Joseph Prince E.W. Kenyon whoever else you want to group up pack them all together all the word of faith Fred Price and Copeland Hagen you know modern and past, pack them all up, squeeze them and concentrate them. They don't rise to a day in the life of Jesus Christ. They don't rise to a day in the ministry of the Apostle Paul or Stephen, who was full of faith and power. They don't rise to the finger of God, the little finger of God. They really don't. I'm saying that the version of this that works and lasts is the version of this that associates all of this risen mind motif and everything with affection. I recognize that I'm using the convenience of the King James that translates phroneo, which often is simply, almost always is simply translated as mind in the scriptures. I'll show you an occasion where that's not exactly true in just a moment. But I'm saying to you, in finishing here, you'll see with me, and you probably already sort of know it anyway, that when Paul says, set your mind on things above, if your affection isn't up above, your mind's not going to go there. If you're not fully persuaded, if you don't want to embrace it like a big hug, if, if, you, if, you, if it's not inviting to you the idea that I've lived under the rudiments of this world, being pulled and bound, and my mind being under the dominion of all the things of this world, even if they're interesting, like sports or, you know, pick your thing, riding bicycles, fishing, whatever. 
No one's saying you can't do those things. You're not hearing me well if you don't understand that. Jesus didn't say, did you not know, Peter, I forbid fishing to all humans from this day forward. It's not what we're talking about. Go fish. If you want to fish, he probably did fish on occasion while he was serving Jesus. As far as I know, Paul made tents, didn't he? After his conversion. But hear what I'm trying to say, that bodily, you are not in heaven. We understand that. You've been sent back here, as it were. You never went bodily to heaven when you were water baptized. But you went most importantly to heaven, which is the whole point of this study, when you were water baptized. And God, as it were, sends you back into this earth in your body to be an ambassador and to be changed, by the way, in your life, your heart, and so on. Okay. You cannot be bodily in God's presence. We get that in your physical body on a regular basis. We get that, don't we? We're waiting for the resurrection, aren't we? Or the rapture, right? You can't be bodily in God's presence. And God isn't physically right in front of you. But do you realize that this is not error when I say your mind is the gateway to fellowship with God? If it isn't your mind, then you please tell me what it is. Do you have fellowship with God? Any one of you? What's the thing that is most active that you could articulate in a definite way by which that occurs? You can say, oh, my heart. Your heart. I will grant you, if we're on a different study, that that's a perfectly fine answer. But then I would tell you that your heart could be embracing any sort of illusion if you're just working by warm feelings from the palpitations of your little pumper. How do you know that that warm feeling is embracing the one true living God? Because you grow in grace and knowledge and the eyes of your understanding are enlightened and He is your wisdom and the mind that is in Christ is in you. And so maybe you don't have a lot of fellowship with God. Maybe you first need to be saved in order to have a claim to this, a logizomai, a, doc, a documental justification for reckoning yourself to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. But what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, your mind is the gateway to fellowship with God. Presently, that's the fact. We walk by faith and not by sight. Your sight is one of the many gateways to your mind. When it says you walk by faith and not by sight, it includes all your sensory perceptions. It's not just meaning literally only your eyes. It means what you hear, what you feel, what is going around you that you touch, and so on. And it says you don't walk by that. Like Abraham of old, you don't consider that. Like the Shunammite of old, you say, it's well with me. I see the answer. All those things that I'm saying is happening in your head. Whether you want to put it this way or not is up to you. But I'm saying to you, as a man thinks, so is he. Your mind is the gateway to these things. If you don't get control of this, then you're not living out 
the possibilities of your confession, your, your, your confession of faith in Christ, your Christianity. Don't forget that seminal statement in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 23, verse 7. For as he thinks in his heart. You see the association with what's going on in your heart. With thinking. So is he. The rest of the verse says, Eat and drink, says he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Eat and drink is what your host says to you, is what this proverb is speaking of. Likely some sort of military situation or politically opposing forces and your host invites you over to have a meal. And the instruction, the wise instruction is, he might say eat and drink and smile and all the rest of it, but don't be deluded by that. Where his heart is, is what he's actually thinking. What he actually is, what's actually on his mind is who he actually is. That's what's really going on in his heart. What's on his mind is he's waiting for an opportunity to kill you. That's who he really is. And that principle is true whether or not you're having dinner with somebody you're about to kill or you're just living life with your wife and your children and life in general and your relationship with God. It's what you think in your heart about the Lord, about these things that we are talking about. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm associating these ideas because of Paul's language, set your mind on things above. This is advocating to all of us, put your affections on the things above. That's the way to live and please God, and enter into the power of all this. Not just embrace this idea for its magical possibilities, so that any particular day, no matter where my heart is, I can smile and say, well, I just don't receive these circumstances, I don't see it this way, in Jesus' name, I just see myself healed, I just see this new vehicle, I just see this marriage happening, this is all just going to work out so wonderfully. But the reality is, is that your heart isn't up above. Then God will say, oh, you want to try the thinking thing now? You want to tell me that everything is going well with you and your relationship with me now, but the fact of the matter is, is what I'm talking about here is real. This isn't silliness. I'm talking about what are you thinking in your heart? What affections do you have? That's what you think about. I don't know what you're thinking about right now. But I'll tell you, it's what you like is what you're thinking about right now. And this is teaching us, if you want to get your mind above powerfully, and have the benefit of all the other blessings, then put your affection on things above. Treasure those heavenlies. 
Treasure learning more about Jesus. Treasure learning more about the eternal things. Stop looking at the mundane. Gain a distaste for the mundane as such. If you're a newsaholic, get away from that. You, you say, well, Brother William, you aren't informed, and some of us like to be informed. You know better than that. I'm informed enough. I'm not saying you have to be a dunce, but I am saying you can spend all day long on your little phone going over every little news item and whatever. And I'm trying to say to you, you could get an affection for things above. And if you will, then your mind will start going up above. And all sorts of things can begin to change for you. Sadly, I suppose it's sad, we don't really have the time this evening to cover all the application points, of which I've had three. I might mention to you, mention them to you just in closing as three points, um, and let it be that. But I am wanting you to hear that the association of this term, phroneo, and throughout the Bible, it does not do what many do with positive thinking and confession. It does not separate the heart and the mind. It doesn't do that anywhere. And so, when it's translated in the King James, set your affection on things above, that's, that's a pretty good translation. That's the implication. Let me read this to you. There was a time when one of Jesus' closest friends, by the name of Peter, heard Jesus speak for the first time about his impending crucifixion. And you'll remember with me that Peter took him aside and said, this shall not be unto you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou, phroneo, that is to say, a verbal version of that noun, for thou savorest not those things that be of God, but those things that be of men. What you see here is he's saying to Peter, Peter, your mind is thinking about all of this from an affection for this life, for an affection for the temporal. You're savoring the things that be of men. And if you savor what's of men and you think maybe even as high a thought as the Jewish kingdom, but it's still a thing of men. If you savor the things of men, that's what your head's on, that's all you can understand, and therefore Satan is going to be able to influence the way you make conclusions about life. And God won't be able to use you. Because you won't go through your trials, you won't go to the cross, you won't endure to the end, because you savor the things of men. You can't even understand these things. I'm showing you that that the King James translators did a good job when they translated that with, you savor the things of men. You see the affection element of that? That's what you have a taste for. Get your taste for things above. This is what's implied in the mind. If all you think you're going to do is do some magic thinking, that's not what I'm teaching. But I am saying that there is great power in a risen mind. Well, Romans 8 and verse 5 in this whole context says that they that are after the flesh, they mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. What are we talking about there? 
Once again, we could do this all day long, so I won't take the time to, you know, give you all the passages, but you ought to be able to see with me, for they that are after the flesh, they have an affection for the flesh. That's their problem. Their mind is always on the things of the flesh. You know what Romans 8 is about in a very real way? It's how to live the victorious life. How to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. How do you do it? How do you live this new life in Christ for what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh? God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin hath condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk in the spirit and not after the flesh. How are you going to do that? I want to tell you tonight if you don't learn how to develop the power of a risen mind including this element, which you cannot extract from it and retain the true biblical concept, including that you learn how to have an affection for the things of the Spirit. You develop that. You work that into your heart. You, you do the hard work of looking at the things of the earth. And I'll tell you, it'll come up today. It's probably already here. The things of this earth will come up to you. And you've got to develop the strength and the power to not let those things Pull your mind and get you all anxious and all worried. And You need to think bigger, brothers and sisters. You need to think above. It's a fact. It's what the Bible teaches. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you, if there was ever a man who walked the earth with his head in the proper sense above, it's absolutely Jesus Christ. The things of this earth, they were as real for him in terms of being there as for anybody else. And he was tempted in all points like we are. But he walked in victory. He said, prince of this world has nothing in me. He walked through this earth like a stranger. He walked in this earth believing in what was above. That's what you're called to do. That's why this is such a true message. I want to encourage you in closing, brothers and sisters, that God is inviting you to walk a victorious life like his own son. And if you think you can do that without having the mind of Christ, well, then you'll have to start your own church. And I don't recommend you do. Brothers and sisters, let's just leave it here this evening where we are presently, realizing we've just touched upon the richness of what this is all about. But enough that you can put it into gear. The power of a risen mind, brothers and sisters, is the power to have the mind of Christ as you walk through the rest of life. 